hey guys, if you want to join Church in the Rock as part of just ascending church, one of the easiest ways that we are a part of that is we send missionaries. We support them. And so when you go, when we do the tithe and offering later, you'll see a section there that says missions and just all of that money that's funneled through that channel goes 100% to missions to support our missions, right? Can we just give it up for our Sutherland missionaries one more time? Just thankful to have them in the house that they're here with us today, amen. I got to have a conversation this week as a parent that most of us probably dread. Dad, this doesn't look like chicken. It is chicken, honey. But where do they make chicken? Well, they make it here. So does the chicken just give us this? <laughs> no, honey. We have to kill the chicken. What? You kill the chicken? Dad! But this leg doesn't look like a chicken. Well, we kill the chicken, then we have to cut the... Dad, you cut the chicken? That's the conversation I got to have this week with Nora. Happy fall. Noble said, Dad, do you know why the leaves are on the ground? They're just taking a nap. A couple more years, and then we'll get to that too, all right? Hey, this morning, can you just stand with me as we read a little bit of scripture to start today off? Can you just stand with me today? Amen. I'm going to read a couple over you, and this is just, if you want to close your eyes, it might be up on the screen, you can read it with me, but whatever, how you want to do it. I just felt like we'd just start off today with honor of God's word. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4 says, For everything there's a season, a time for every activity under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, build up, a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to grieve, and a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 34, 8 says, The people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. And lastly, Matthew 5, 4. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Amen? Would you just turn to the person next to him and say, You're looking good today. I'm glad you made it to church today. <laughs> you can grab a seat. You can grab a seat. That was a little forced for some of you, but I'm glad you said it anyways. Hey, I'm Pastor Josh. Nice to meet you. I'm not a stranger to you guys. I've been up here often. I've been in the youth ministry for six years now, leading the kids or youth or young adults or young families or whatever. But today may be a little different for you. Today you may be looking at me, and last week you realized that Brian's not on vacation. Today you realize that this Josh guy is going to be up here for a little bit more than we're used to. Maybe last week you realized for the first time that this is our new reality. And you may be feeling a lot of different things today. You also may be new here, and this might be your first time. You might be like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> what, 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 have I talked about chicken dying, leaves dying, Moses dying? What is going on here? Hey, we're in the middle of a trans, uh, we're just the beginning, actually, of a church transition from leadership. 
Our senior pastor, I believe, came and did his part and now has been sent to do his next thing. Founding pastor of 21 years. But today, that leaves us in a really unique position because today, you know, you guys have done an excellent job. The number of calls or conversations we had that have been negative or frustrated have been so minimal. Usually, every person I talk to has been like, this was a shock, but I'm excited for this next season. This was a shock, but I know that God's got this. This was a shock, but I know that God's got us moving into forward. That's amazing. And that's exactly where we should be. But also with that, I want to give you permission to grieve a little bit today. And so, whether you know Brian for 20 years, or this is your first Sunday, and you're like, I don't know who Brian is, or whatever, we all suffer loss. We all suffer pain. And so today, we're just going to have a conversation about what that looks like in the Bible, and how to approach that as a Christian. Amen? Amen. So, I think we just need to pause here and pray before we get into this. Father, thank you, God, for your people. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would protect and lead. This conversation, God, could lead us to places we're not ready for. It could open up old wounds, God, that maybe we've been trying to hide from. God, I just pray your protection and leadership in our hearts right now. That you would guide people in the appropriate time and appropriate place. God, whether if this grief is fresh or old for us. Thank you, God, that you are the comforter. Thank you, God, that you promise when we mourn that we'll be comforted and blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, why this is so important today is because we live in a culture right now that does not handle grief well. Um, Maria Shiver puts it this way. We're a grief illiterate nation. We live in a moment right now where individualism and individuality are king. We value personal strength. We undervalue weakness. When we do get into situations where there's grief, it usually makes us feel really uncomfortable. It makes us say stupid things, like going to the wake and getting to the line and saying to the family, I'm so sorry, are you doing okay? The answer is no, they are not doing okay. Okay, it's not good. We just get uncomfortable with grief. We, we don't know how to handle it. Or maybe you do, but I, I know it makes me uncomfortable. Um, George Annas Annas says, Annas says, death denied. We America is a death denying culture that cannot accept death as anything but defeat. We're Americans. We've been taught that defeat <laughs> that's not an option. We are the pull yourself up by the bootstrap nation. We are the nation that pioneered the West, built trains through hills, like we always win. We've been taught, maybe from a young age, that big boys, big girls don't cry. Suck it up. Get up and get to it. And I don't know about you, but those are the kind of messages that have been told to me from a real young age. We applaud the people that can feel tremendous loss and pain, yet somehow dig it up in themselves to get up the next day and to still succeed. It's hard for us to applaud the people that lay in bed, racked with grief and pain, and just clearly can't find it in themselves to move forward to work the next day. That really doesn't get as much screen time or Hollywood videos, right? But we always see the underdog winning and winning and winning. And so what do we do with grief? Why do we avoid it? And I don't know about you, but I know for me that I'm a pain avoidant control freak. Okay, if it's not you, just point to the person next to them and say, it's you. It's okay if it's not you. Just point to them and say, it's probably you. 
No, really, go ahead. Just tell them it's probably you. And not to generalize everybody in this room, but we, we've been learned from a, a young age that, you know, grief comes from probably three things. Loss, pain, or disappointment. And from a young age, we, we're ready to just, we learn to run away from those things or to push those things down or to deny, to, to deny those things so we can keep moving on. And maybe you've stepped into grief before and you've felt the tremendous emotion that comes along with grief. If you've ever sobbed uncontrollably, you know that things can get a little crazy. And maybe if you're like me, you hate losing control. And so we avoid grief because we're not sure what it's going to do to us. We don't know where it's going to take us. We don't know if I start entering into this, if I start facing the feelings I've been pushing down so long, I don't know what's going to come out. We avoid pain. <laughs> and we're control freaks sometimes. Man, when it comes to loss and pain, we've become Houdini's escaping it. Pete uh, Scazzaro, and you're going to hear a lot of him today, um, he writes a book called Emotionally Healthy Church, and he has this chapter on addressing grief, and a lot of this message today is based on that. So he says this, many of us have taken our culture's pain-denying view of grieving. Perhaps the most popular way in our culture of not paying attention to our losses and pain is medicating ourselves through an addiction. People use work. TV, drugs, alcohol, shopping or food binges, busyness, sexual escapades, unhealthy relational attachments, even serving others at church incessantly. Anything to medicate the pain of life. Year after year, we deny and avoid the difficulties and losses of life, the rejections and frustrations. People in our churches minimize their failures and disappointments. The result is that for many today, at least in the prosperous, prosperous North America, there's a widespread inability to face pain. This has led to an overall feeling of superficiality and a lack of profound compassion. When I was starting to do research and prepping for this message, I found it, and I was actually even talking to Mr. Grice before we started sermon today or church today, was that, you know, that in the Jewish culture, they actually have a system in place to deal with grief. It's a three-period system. And there's a, in uh, in the very last period, if it's a close family member, you're expected to go in a time of 11 months of grieving. Here in our culture, we're really good up until the funeral. We show up, flowers, cards, we bury them, and then we wake up the next day, and our lives go on, and we expect everybody else to catch up. If we're really on our A game, that next week afterwards, we show up with those fattening casseroles, and we get people those. But Grief comes very quickly, and we approach it like a task to just get through and get done and get going on so we can pick up normal life. Because grief feels like a weakness, takes away control, makes us address pain. And if we have to start doing those things, we don't know what's going to happen. It throws all of the things that we've got balancing in life out of control. How many people right now might feel like, man, I've got everything just balanced enough right now. I used to do a sermon example when I had more time to practice where I would juggle very badly. And I'd have somebody come up on stage and then I had three balls and then just throw things at me. And they would all fall to the ground. One situation out of nowhere might make everything topple and grief feels like that sometimes. And you know, we've been talking about death right now, but grief comes in any form of loss. Pizza Zero says, loss is loss. 
And so a really silly situation is that, you know, one of the horrors for me of COVID is that it shut down the only gluten-free uh, donut bakery in 45-minute driving radius of us. Just a moment of silence for Kraft Donuts. I'm serious. We got the news, you know, this was back when everything was still shut down and it was hard to go out at all. We got news that Kraft Donuts was shutting down and it, it, I turned to Amy and I said, it is stupid how sad I am about Kraft Donuts shutting down. I love food. <laughs> I love donuts. And half my family is gluten-free. And so we had this place that it was such, it just, it just was rich in memories. You know, there's nothing else. It was rich in memories, made us really fat. We loved it. Super stupid, expensive to spend money on that kind of donut. But it was so good and it was gluten-free. We could go there and now it's gone. How does that compare to losing a family member? Losing our family, founding pastor of 20 new years. Not a lot, but for me it was a loss. And I had to intentionally take time to recognize the feelings I was feeling around that. But in our culture right now, and even in, especially even in the church, we like to trivialize, minimize, or over-spiritualize. And we take grief, we take loss, and it's God's will. Romans 8, 28, all things will work for good. Philippians, uh, what is it? Uh, through, in Christ I can do anything. Go to every trial with joy, right? And, we, and that's not bad. That's appropriate. But there's also things that God gave us grief. God gave us grief. In my flesh, I want to just take a stupid thing like a donut shop closing. And I want to just minimize and say, Josh, it's just a donut shop. Josh, you really could use to lose a couple pounds anyways. Josh, you're spending too much money there anyway. It doesn't matter. Josh, it was 45 minutes away. It was an hour and a half driving there and back. Like, it doesn't matter. Other donut shops will pop up. It's fine. I really had to stop and dress myself as, no, this is a loss for me. I had to start intentionally taking time to feel that pain. Because loss is usually associated with pain. And if you don't push it down, when you address it, you start looking to it, you start the grief process. David Kessler, uh, he's the co-author of The Five Stages of Grief. And he said, he said this later on after publishing. He said, we're the first generation to feel sad about feeling sad. We're the first generation to have feelings about feelings. We're the first generation to feel bad that a coffee shop is failing, and then I feel sad about it, but then I'm mad about it because I feel sad about it because I should be a big boy and just move on. We're the first generation to have this guilt complex about our feelings. And I think that's really, really accurate right now of where we are. But here's the thing, is that when we separate ourselves from our pain, when we choose not to push in and to grieve, we're actually separating ourselves from God's source of compassion. Are you guys feeling really uplifted yet? Was <laughs> this the joyful sermon you're hoping to come into? It's, it's, it's my job. Make you feel good and walk out of here, right? We're jumping right into this because this is the only way I know how to process it and handle it today. And so you might be anywhere in the scope today. Maybe you're like, I don't know who Brian is to life is over as we know it. I don't know where you fall on the scale. 
And I don't know what loss. You may be sitting here dealing with loss today that has nothing to do with this church. It has everything to do with everything going on in your life right now. A lost relationship, a lost, a disappointing opportunity, maybe even good things. You just became an empty nester. You just transitioned your last kid to college and change came. You just moved here from away and you just lost the relationships that you had and friendships. You just realized and looked in the mirror that the hair you had 10 years ago isn't quite there. The waistline is a little bit bigger than you'd like. Maybe you're suffering a loss or a change today that has nothing to do with this today. This message is for you. Because we all deal with loss. We all have opportunity to walk into it. And so why do we grieve? Why do we grieve? Did you know that um, my kids right now are in a section in school right now about sharks? And so, or not sharks, animals in general. And so I came home the other day, and they were telling me all these shark facts and just gross stuff. Like, did you know if a shark has something that doesn't settle with its stomach, it spits its stomach out, empties it, then pulls, sucks it back in? If you don't remember anything else, you will remember that fact from this sermon for the rest of your life. Amen? Don't amen that. And so, did you know that there are a lot of species of sharks that if they stop moving, they die? If they stop moving, they die. They have to have a clean intake of water, clean air to come into their gills. And sometimes when we look at grief, we like to just stop it. Pain comes, loss comes, stop. Just put it away. David Kessler says that emotion needs motion. Your emotion, you have to send it and read, you have to direct it. You have to direct it, otherwise it'll come up and control you. You have to take control of your emotion and channel it to the right places. And our grief is like that. We have to take our pain, take our loss, and channel it. John 10.10 says, the end of it says, I came that you could have life, indeed so that they could live life to the fullest. Not to the halfest, to the fullest. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. We don't just go through seasons of dancing our whole life. And if we ignore the time of mourning, if we ignore the time of pain, it will dull you to the times of dancing. If you ignore the painful stuff, it'll start callousing your heart over. I remember, you know, I started thinking about this, and I was thinking about my life, and most of the way up until I got into college, I was not characterized as an emotional person. I would have extreme, uh, when I was really pressured or really down, I would have extreme episodes of rage or uh, slight depression. But most of the time, I was jokey-jokey, surface-surface, never had a deep conversation. Could remember maybe two times in my life that I had had like a cry, like ever cried because I, I just didn't like to feel the pain. I didn't like to feel rejection. I didn't like to give myself time even to think, am I fitting in with these people or is this going well? Is the relationship going well? It just ended. I just like to move on and move on and move on. I like to just cover up and push past. You know, when I, first, when I got into college and I started having people that are intentionally discipling me, modeling what it looked like to be Jesus and to live this Christian life out, that was the first time that I really owned Christianity as my own and I started taking authority over my life. And I started taking authority over the emotions that I was feeling and taking authority. And I realized that as I started addressing past pain and not just making a joke and move on, I noticed that I started crying a lot more. 
And it still happens today. It's like a given gamble that any other day, about 50-50 chance, I'm going to get up here, get a mic, and start crying into the mic. Okay, that's just who I am. But as I started feeling my emotions, I also started feeling this connection to God and this intimacy with God that I had never felt before. And the only way I can describe it is, is almost as ice numbing, ice melting. If you ever done that, uh, you know, you didn't have a lot of money, went to a friend's house. We did this as guys. And you just pierce your own ear, you know, take the piece of ice and put it there, pierce your ear, go home, try to hide it from your mom. She finds it, rips it out, and then you have to let it heal, and then you do it all over again the next week. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) (laughs) It's so easy to numb ourselves to our emotions. But when you numb yourself to part of yourself, you're numbing yourself to your whole self. Life and life to its fullest. And so why do we grieve? You know, as early as Genesis 6-6, we see God grieving. We see God grieving over what's our sin nature. Ephesians 4, we see the Holy Spirit grieving and groaning over our lifestyle of sin. And really where I want to just go right now is John chapter 11. I've read this to you before, but it just fits so well today. I had to bring it back to your attention. So John chapter 11, there's a man named Lazarus, and he was sick. He's sick. And they come and they find Jesus and say, Jesus... Your, your friend, the disciple, the one that you love, he's sick and dying. Come, would you come? And Jesus delays. But in that delay, I find three times that Jesus says, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Our friend, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and wake him up. Lazarus is dead, but for your sakes I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Three times before Jesus even makes the journey to go to find Lazarus. He knows what will happen. He knows that he's going to be too late. He knows that Lazarus is going to die. He knows he's going to disappoint people. He knows he's going into pain. He knows that his sisters, that his friends are going to be grieving the loss of their brother. But he lets it happen. And so Jesus gets there. And he meets the sisters. He meets the crowds. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her. A deep anger welled up within him. He was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus said, suck it up, crybabies! Get over it! Your faith is so lacking. Don't you know who I am? He's already asserted three times this doesn't end in death. But Jesus wept, verse 35. Jesus felt the full range of human emotion. And I really believe, why does Jesus do this? We've talked about this before. He comes in at the invitation to come into our life, but also also he feels our pain. We have examples of Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane and really grieving what he has to do. Father, if there's anything else, take this away from me. Jesus feels the grief. He doesn't just try to push it down. He doesn't over-spiritualize it. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't trivialize it. He says, it's okay to be hurt. It's okay to feel pain. It's okay to feel your loss, even if you know that God's still God. 
even if you know you're going to be okay, even if you know that at the end of the day that we've already won, that we all will reunite in heaven, even if we know that everything is going to turn out for our good and his glory, it's okay to weep. And so why do we grieve? Because we have an example of every single part of God, our authority, our deity, grieving. Jesus' grief, I really believe, sent him to the cross. Jesus' grief of humanity that's lost and far from him sent him in with compassion to move, to give up his authority in heaven, to come down and take on the boundaries and the, the of restrictions of a human, to feel things, to feel pain, to die on a cross. And so where do we go with all of this? How do we do this? You know, the five stages of grief are great and they're okay, but I just want to give you some biblical ways to deal with grief today. And the first thing before we get into this is that I really believe that grief is not a linear progressive journey. Okay, there's no like, here's the five steps, here's the ten steps, start here, you will end here, and boom, you will have processed grief, and you will be a healthy, emotional, spiritual person. Like, there's nothing like that, okay? And even C.S. Lewis put it this way, he lost his wife after only four years of marriage, and he says, grief turns out not to be a state, but a process. Grief is like a winding road where the bend may reveal, where every bend may reveal a totally new landscape. Imagine a path, if you've ever been to Colorado, Colorado or the mountains or Tennessee, where the path just switches back and forth, back and forth, and sometimes you feel lower even if you're going up. You may flip back and forth, back and forth as you go through grief and look at grief. But today I just want to give you a few guardrails, processes to start on that will guide your journey as you start entering the process of emotional and spiritual health. And the very first one is that we must face our grief. You must face it. And I want to look at, we talked about David Kessler, who's written the five stages of grief, but I want to look at our David, King David. And so David, if you know him, he was anointed to be king at a young age, 13, 14, 15 is what people guesstimate, okay? And he's young, and he goes and he kills a giant, which is amazing, didn't ever think it could happen. And then he finds tremendous favor with King Saul, and King Saul brings him into the family. And then after that, he's still finding uh, success after success, and in the middle of all that, Jonathan, be or Jonathan becomes David's one of his closest friends talks about how he is closer to him than even a wife. If you remember our uh, conversation earlier this year on community, we talked about how the most important relationship in biblical times was the priority of the family. And he says, even beyond this, you are the deepest, closest friendship I could have. And so David feels all these things. But in the middle of all of that, King Saul gives way to jealousy and frustration and rage and anger Instead of looking and trying to be helpful and trying to process his, this with God, he goes on the defensive and starts hunting David down to kill him. And so after years, something I think it's 13 years, 13 years of being on the run, finally King Saul and Jonathan die in battle. And so I want to point you to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. And this is the moment where David finds out that after years of persecution, years of being on the run, years of not having food, being around a rabble, being around riotous people, being around on the warpath, 
he can finally enter into what God promised him almost 15 years earlier to be king. And David does not meet this how I think I would greet that news. With excitement and with joy and like, finally! If you remember that first breath after your graduation ceremony of high school or college, finally! Years of toil! I'm here. David does not do that. Instead, David being the, the composer that he is, it says this, 2 Samuel 1, verse 18. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan. He commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. Not only did David address and feel his loss, feel his emotions, he commanded the people to do it as well. He knew that he had to walk into it and that the whole nation had to do it as well. It's known as the Song of the Bow and is recorded in the book of Jashar. Verse 19, it says, I'm just going to read you a few verses. It says, Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh in triumph. Upon learning the death of the person that had been pursuing him to kill him for years, David's first reaction is to pause and to address his loss. Pete Cesaro says, David understands how indispensable grieving is to our spiritual maturity. David knows we are deepened by taking time to grieve our losses before moving on. He knows how important it is for people to stay connected to reality and not run from pain. What's next these next couple of weeks? Church, the next season is to rest yourself. Put some of those plates that you're spinning and, you know, like the, the guy at the carnival that spins all the plates on the sticks. Put some of those down. Take a season where you take the busyness out and you can let yourself connect. Connect to God. Invite other people in and connect with them. Connect to yourself. One of the most damaging things that we can do is that we numb ourselves to ourselves. We numb ourselves to our soul. And when we run away and we push pain down, we're not taking time to address it, to press into it. And so right now, take a deep breath. Fall is a time of death. We love when the trees are turning colors, but really it's just their dying moments before they die and winter comes and we're surrounded by snow for nine months. Like now's the time. Happy message today, right? <laughs> King David teaches us that we must address our grief head on. We do not run from reality, but embrace it. David not only taught this, but do you know there's 150 psalms? And in the psalms, Pastor Joe and we've been talking, he said it shows and teaches the full range of human emotions in the psalms. And David's accredited to more than half of those. And of those, he's, they've classified the psalms as different types. There's five different types. And one of those is psalms of lament or psalms of mourning, psalms of grieving. And did you know that there's almost more than 50% of the psalms are psalms of lament? And David wrote a lot of those. Once you face your grief, you will get pushed into a season of the waiting. Once you face your grief, you enter a season of in-between and unknown. This is where Jesus died on the cross, and he felt isolated and alone and said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And he was buried for three days. 
Once you face your grief, you get pushed into places. Is God there? Is he answering my prayer? Does he see me? Is he going to move? Is he going to help me? Is he going to alleviate these circumstances? That is where it gets uncomfortable. That's where we don't know what we're going to do. Will I just always be in this season of grief? Will I always feel this way? This is too painful. I don't know what's going to happen next because we're control freaks, right? We need to know what's going to happen. We need to have that one, two, three, five, ten-year plan. You need to know what the next step is. I love scripture where it says, your, your words are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A lamp shows you the next step. It's not the sun where it just you know you're going from here to there. It shows you the very next step. And the waiting, you might just get just the very next step. And it might be like, wait. Feel it. Or maybe wait. Invite your friend in to know how you're feeling. Wait. Take time to journal. Wait. Something's going to happen. We have so many psalms of lament. But every one of them, or not every one of them, but there's a generalized theme throughout them. And there's this theme of five points, addressing God, complaining to God, affirming of God's trust, asking for help, and blessing and praise. Often when we get to the season of waiting where it's the in-between, God's dead, he's buried into the tomb, what's going to happen now? Have we, been, have we been lied to? Have we been following this guy? Doesn't make sense. Like, why didn't this happen? God, why aren't you moving? When we're in that season... When we enter into that season, something's happening. And we want God to come and alleviate the physical circumstances right away. I won't feel this way if you answer my prayer and move now. But David doesn't teach that in the Psalms. Again and again and again, David goes into the Psalms and he addresses God. He airs all the things he's feeling. He's honest with God. We're, it's hard for us to be honest with people. Grief makes us a liar. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm dying on the inside, but I'm not going to say that to you. Often we get dishonest with God. So David comes, he's honest with God. God, I'm not feeling good. I'm scared. I'm frustrated. All night I soak my, tear, my bed in tears. He, again and again. But he ends the psalm with affirmation of who God is. If you read Romans 8 too quickly, you miss the grieving part. If you don't let yourself feel it, you're going to feel the full extent of your life. And so, in the psalm, David says, you know what? I don't have an answer to this right now, but I know who you are, God. I don't see you moving right now, but I've seen how you've done it before. I don't know what the next answer is. This all feels impossible, but I know that you are God and you have everything in control. Uh, this might be a little bit of a direction change, but did anybody ever grow up with a compost pile? Who is this guy? Who gave him a microphone? I grew up in the country, okay, and we had a compost pile, and it's the place where you throw all the scraps and disgusting stuff. Banana peels and eggshells and whatever you just have on, we just threw it in there, right? And it stunk. It smelled bad. You're sitting there out on the back porch, and the wind turns the right way, and you get a whiff of it. I'm going inside. 
And Pizzazzaro quotes this, uh, John Milton, and he, and he says it this way, is that there's this idea of the compost pile. Something happens while refuse is sitting on a compost pile. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantly. But year one, year two, year three, that trash, that decay, that death becomes something fertile, something rich, something good, something where life can come forth from that death. Just because we don't see God moving doesn't mean he's not moving in your life. Just because it feels impossible doesn't mean that God's not doing something. Think for yourself, some of the hardest seasons of life where I didn't know what the next step was, and I thought, God, this is the answer. It turned out to be a no, and then you're like, I don't know what the next step is. But David says, I trust you. My help is from Zion. I look to the hills. I pray to my God. He's good. Every person, Pastor Joe preached a couple of weeks ago about who, where do you take your refuge? Where do you go? God will never disappoint you. Pete ends it this way. He says, the worst events of human history that we cannot understand, even hell itself, are only compost in God's wonderful eternal plan. Out of the greatest evil the death of Jesus came the greatest good. God transforms evil into good without diminishing the awfulness of evil. Do not miss the waiting period. Once you look and enter into pain, once you look and enter into grief, there comes the season where you just don't know what's going to happen. But in that season, God is doing some of his best work. This is the season where you can look at your emotions. You can say, I know that I feel this way, but that is not truth. I know I feel like this will never end. I know like the daylight never feels like it's going to come. I feel like dancing is never going to come. That is not truth. God has won. God is doing something, even if you can't see it. And next week, we're going to look at the very last part, which is that the old gives birth to the new. Change requires loss. Transformation requires death. And next week we're going to look at that. But this week, I want you to just capture onto the idea of waiting in the unknown. Waiting for God to do something. And it's not a bad place. It's where your trust on God grows. It's where truth anchors you and not feeling an emotion. It's where God, you can still say, is good, even if my circumstances don't look good. It's in that moment where you can start saying the Bible verses to yourself, like Romans and Philippians and James. It's in that moment. But do not get hasty. Don't go there first. Allow yourself to face reality and to feel it. Jesus did. God did. The Holy Spirit grieves over us. And we can do the same. Often we want to rush the process. You know, when we, uh, we have three kids, and our youngest just turned a year a little bit ago. But before she was born, um, my oldest, who was only three at the time, she would, uh, after we told her that mommy's pregnant with a baby and the baby's growing, almost every single day for about seven months, is the baby coming today? Is the baby coming today? And we had to say, no, honey, the baby's not coming. It's going to be a long time. And the baby's only, you know, as big as a pea. The baby's only as big as a fist. The baby's only as big as a water. If we had rushed that process, we would not have been happy with the results. 
But we know that when we can't see, we can't understand that something is happening. God's growing something inside of us that we can't understand. In the right time, we know it's going to come about as a blessing. I cannot explain every pain that you're suffering. This church has been, this church more than probably any other church I know, for some reason, God's put an anointing on it to draw in broken and hurting people. And the answer isn't me. It's not Devin in the storm. It's, it's, it's right here at this altar. God sees you, church. God sees you right now, even if you feel like Pastor Brian has been the leader and he's doing everything and he's, he's been such an essential part of my life and now what do I do while he's gone? God still got you. I said this last week and it's still true today that Brian moved to Florida but God didn't go with him. He's still here. The same God that moved through Brian, who moved in him to put people into the altar to experience God is still the same God that you will feel right now. It's still the same God that you can feel every single day of your life. God has you. You don't need me. You don't need Brian. You have everything you need with the Holy Spirit inside of you. This is where we get together and we clap our hands and we get excited and we get woohoo and I make you yell or Devin makes you yell and we get pumped up because this is the party. But then you go back to everyday life and God's in your everyday life too. Amen? You know, Nora the other week said, man, I love the Sabbath. It feels like Christmas morning, <laughs> which I'm just like, yes, we're doing it. We're winning, okay? But when we Sabbath, when we take a break, Christmas morning is probably my favorite day of the year, but it's not my every day. You can experience God the same way, the same power that you experience him here on a Sunday morning, every day of your life. What's next? What do we do here? Band, you can start coming. Ushers, you can start coming as well. So where do we go from here? Slow down. Take a season. They mourned Moses 30 days. And then Joshua went up and said, what's next, Lord? What's the assignment? Take a season. If you're in a pain of loss, pain of grief, a season of loss, a season of pain, a season of grief. Take some time to slow down. Rest. Connect with your soul. Connect with God. Connect with this church. Connect with small groups or serving or your neighbors or your family. Connect and bring people in. You don't have to do it alone. Read a psalm. Read through the Psalms. Hear David's heart cry. Hear the things that he was experiencing and learn from David. How did he end? How does he process his grief, his loss? The things that you're going to have to fight against, church, is isolation and distraction and numbing yourself. Our gut instinct is to get as far away from pain as quickly as possible. And if that means putting the phone in your hand and looking at YouTube until 3 a.m. because you can't sleep and you stay up every night with insomnia because you start feeling things, if you quiet down, throw the phone away. Put it on airplane mode. Shut it off and leave it downstairs. Do not numb yourself. If your thing is you fill in the blank, don't let yourself become numb. Ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to face it and then know that he's going to sit with you in the in-between. Jesus wept. Three times he asserted what he's going to do. Three times he said, this doesn't end in death. 
This is for the glory of God. But yet when he was in the moment with the people who were hurting, he didn't rush them through it. He cried. He wept. Your God is a present God. He is not a hasty God. He is a patient God. Even now, he's waiting to incorporate the full body of Christ before he comes back. Your God is waiting on you. And he is present with you. Church, I just want to read this verse over you. This is Psalms 22. And I was trying to think, there's like 60 or some, 70 or some different psalms of lament. And this one just kept coming to my mind. I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you're in a season of lament, maybe your assignment, your next step is to take time today and just read Psalm 22 all the way. We know Psalm 23 really well, but listen to this. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift up my voice, but I find no relief. Verse 3. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel, our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. And then verse 6, but I am a worm, not a man. And he goes back into it. It's not a linear path, 1 through 10. You might go here and then back and here and then back. You might feel like, God, I'm hurt, but you're good, but I'm a worm. I know we don't use that a lot, but it was apparently culturally relevant to David. Read all of Psalm 22. It flip-flops back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But it ends in asserting that God is God. That he sits with us in the waiting. That even if we don't see it, even in death, he's coming. Ben, you can start anything you want to. Right now, we're just going to take a second and take a moment. And we're going to go right into communion. We'll have altar team up here today, a couple of prayer workers, and I'll be up down here in the front. If you want prayer, if you want to talk to somebody, you're welcome this, to come up front for prayer. But I was just getting the sense that this is going to be a very private thing at first. This is a, this is a message, this entering into grief is something that you might have to just do on your own. And so right now, if you did not get a cup of communion, can you just raise your hand? Put your hand up if we believe in open communion. So if you assert that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you've given your life to him, we invite you to take communion with us. Great, thank you. Your first step might be right here, church. Your first step might be right here is just in communion. Inviting God into your situation. Thank you. So church, I'm just going to invite you and we're going to go through communion right now. The very first thing to do is just to pause and examine your heart. If you know that there are things that are separating you from God, now's the time to confess them. Now's the time to say, Father, I know I've been running. God, I know I did that thing I shouldn't have. Will you forgive me? Take a moment to cleanse your heart before we take communion.
you would separate the top, there's a piece of loaf, a loaf of bread in the very top, if you grab that and put it in your hand. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 28 says, So if anyone eats this bread, drinks this cup of wine, oops, sorry, sorry, Matthew 26, 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. You can take and eat. Before we drink, church, take a few moments and reflect and assert that God is God. You were just honest with him in your emotions, you're honest in your thoughts. Before we take this, just start praising God. God, you are good. God, I feel like there's no way out right now. God, I feel like that thing's too scary to approach. God, I feel like I can't do this alone. Thank you, God, I'm not alone. Lord, even right now, I pray you would just start bringing to mind, God, times that were impossible before that you came through. Times that we felt alone, God, but you were faithful. Church, will you just stand with me today? Matthew 26, 27. They took the cup of wine, gave thanks to God for it, he gave to them and said, Each of you drink for it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of the many. Take and drink. Amen. Church, we're going to go into from this into just a little bit of praise. Because what you just experienced and what you did is went from death to life. Every time we do that, we remember the cycle of Jesus taking us from sin to life. So Father, right now, we praise you, God. Thank you, God, for being here with us. Thank you, God, that no matter where we are, Father, that you see us. Thank you, God, for being a present, God. Thank you, God, for healing us, God. Thank you, God, for being with us, even if it doesn't make sense and is unknown. Lord, we love you. Would you just say that right now, church? Lord, we love you. Father, we just give you honor and praise today. Thank you, God, for waiting with us. Thank you, God, for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen.